You know it. You love it. And today we're back for our sixth installment of everybody's favorite type of case, the unquestionably most popular topic we cover, Missing 411. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, my lovelies, to another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden, the podcast about bad things. I'm your host and your old buddy, Brad. Now, we typically focus on killings and murders and other weird true crimes, but y'all love these Missing 411 cases. These are always our most downloaded episodes, and we haven't done one in about six or seven months, so I figure it's time. Today we're referring, or all of our information is coming straight from Dave Politis' book, Missing 411, The Devils in the Details. And as an extra added super bonus, this episode is totally unscripted, meaning I've got no script to go by, I've got no notes, I'm just going to tell you what the stories are and react accordingly. Do you expect it to be a disaster? Well, you should. Because it's probably going to be ugly. But at least there'll be lots of fun missing 411 stories to fill in the weird gaps and pauses and stumblings I do as we work our way through this episode, all right? Well, as you know, we don't don't do a whole lot of banner around these parts, so uh, let's just jump right into this first story and and enjoy this ride. We're going to start off in Idaho with a rare double missing persons case. Amelia Amy Linkert and Joe Elliott Blakesley. They were both in their 60s when they disappeared back in September of 2013 from the Craters of the Moon National Monument. Now, Amy was a retired school teacher while Joe was actually a graduate of the University of Washington's medical school, had retired from the U.S. Navy at the rank of commander, and now worked as the physician at the Snake River Correctional Institute in Ontario, Oregon. So on September 9th, they packed up and drove to this Craters of the Moon National Monument and the, tra- the Tree Molds Trailhead. They had told friends they'd be back in Boise no later than September 21st, but since we're talking about them, you know that didn't happen. She was reported missing, excuse me, Joe was reported missing by her superiors at the correctional facility on September 23rd. Amy's family called the police the next day on the 24th. Searches were brought in, and they immediately found the vehicle the ladies were driving in. It contained their purse, their cell phone, their ID, and their two dogs. Their poor dogs had been locked in the back of this car during this entire time they had been missing. Now, there's something very odd about this national park. Again, it's called Craters of the Moon, and allegedly, this was an area that was inhabited by a First Nations tribe composed allegedly entirely of midgets. 
which seems very, very unusual. The this and according to Native American legend, this tribe was not very social. They were kind of forced to live in this craterous, rocky area because they couldn't do anything but help cause problems for the other tribes. They were considered a curse. Game would go missing when they were around. And they kind of had a bad habit of killing warriors from other tribes. So people, First Nations people knew you don't go into this craterous part of the world. We leave this tribe alone. People would test it from every now and again, and they would never come back home. So it's got kind of the spooky feeling to it to begin with. But anyway, back to the search. On September 25th, which is really just a day after search efforts started looking for these two women, a body was found. Now, it was initially reported to be Joe's body, but several days later, police corrected that error and said, no, we found Amy's body. No idea why there was that initial confusion, but it wouldn't be a missing 411 case if things went smoothly, right? Several of the searchers, including the sheriff's office in the Idaho National Guard, unofficially commented to reporters that where Amy's body was found was incredibly rugged and inaccessible due to the lava fields that were known to, to be found in this area. So, David Politis points out immediately, if it's inaccessible, how did Amy end up there? Well, we don't know. The search for Joe continued. Helicopters were brought in. Eight canine teams, Civil Air Patrol, a whole bunch of volunteers. And then all of a sudden on October 1st, they got thrown a curveball. The National Park was set, shut down by the federal government due to budgetary issues. That meant nobody could be there to search. Now, emergency funds were made available several days later. And that allowed at least 10 searchers to resume the grind looking for Joe's body. Now, the trailhead and this craters of the Moon National Park area isn't far from what's known as the Devil's Orchid Nature Trail. This is apparently some of the roughest off-trail hiking you can do in the United States. If you ever looked at a picture of it, it you'd look at it and say, no, people don't walk. That That's for mountain goats. That's not for people. Around the same time, on October 1st, the same day that the, the National Park was shut down due to budgetary issues, a massive, massive storm came in. And the bad weather continued for several days. By October 12th, cave specialists had been brought in to search inside some of these lava tubes to see if Joe had tried to take to hiding there and got stuck or something along those lines. Now, 
this area is just ripe with hiking trails. According to Politus's book, there's tens of thousands of miles of hiking trails in this area. And so all the searchers were really, really, really having to work hard to try to find this woman. When the weather cleared up, helicopters went back up in the air. This search went on until October 23rd, so 28 days after Amy's body was found, they finally found Joe's body. A helicopter was actually the one that discovered it from the air. It was in... Uh, Joe's body was found in lava fields north and west of Tremold's Trail. And her... The location of her body was about one mile from the location where searchers had found Amy's body. So not that far, only a mile away. Now, of course, with the body being so close to Amy's, helicopters and searchers and everything, they've passed through this area multiple, multiple, multiple times, and yet no one discovered the body. This helicopter was not the first to fly through the area. In fact, other helicopters with advanced sensory software designed to find human bodies on the ground passed over this area multiple times and never found Joe. Yet it was the spotter on a helicopter 28 days after the search began who just happens to see Joe laying in these lava pits. This particular area, too, was very difficult to get to. The park superintendent described it as very treacherous and nasty, which made lots of the search and rescue personnel ask, well, how on earth did this woman get here in the first place? Interestingly enough, too, Joe's cause of death has never been officially determined. In fact, the Park Service won't provide any of their records on the search for Joe until the coroner's report is complete. And as of David Politis writing his book, which is March of 2014, that had not been done. So for five years, the coroner was not able to determine what killed Joe. Now, even as far as missing 411 cases go, this one's... A little bit odd. The women get out of their car. First of all, you don't have pairs go missing very often, right? So the women get out of their car at the trailhead for what I presume to be at least a semi-popular hiking trail. They've got their dogs in the car. They've got their cell phones in the car. They've got their purses in the car. They've got all their gear in the car. And they disappear at that time. Now, of course, we don't know if they disappeared five minutes after getting out of the car, two hours later. But if you've got two dogs in the car, you ain't going to keep them in there for very long, right? So that tends to make me think that they something happened that caused them to go missing almost instantly upon arriving. And then to be found where they were, in just this treacherous, rocky, craterous terrain that has lava and, and hidden lava tubes that you could fall into. 
that's weird. Why would you go in that direction? And on top of that, and on top of that, you've got the traditional missing 411 stuff, right? The canine never could find Joe's body. Helicopters couldn't find it. You had horrible weather come through that messed up the entire search. And then nobody knows how Joe died. Nobody knows. It's a mystery. So just a really, really weird case where you've got two best friends who bring their dogs and then disappear before their dogs can even get outside to go potty. It's sad. Really sad. Really strange. And it makes me want to look into that Craters of the Valley National Park a little bit more because the, the story behind it sounds very interesting. Up next, we've got little three-year-old Myrtle Gray from Churchton, Maryland. She went missing in July of 1953 while out exploring the woods with her brother. Her mother had gotten ill and was in bed, so grandmother came to watch the children. And they went out to play, got out of sight, then eventually reappeared, but only brother reappeared. Sister did not. Now, it just so happens that brother, whose name was Charles, had, well, he was mute. He had the inability to speak. And so he couldn't tell his grandma or his mom what had happened to Myrtle, his sister. So, of course, in a panic, mama gets out of bed, grandma gets out of bed, they poke around for a little bit, but then they call the neighbor for assistance and the neighbor calls the sheriff's office. Law enforcement asked for volunteers and just a whole mess of soldiers arrived from the local Fort Meade. There was over 500 people combing the area within hours. And this is an area full of woods and swamps. It's kind of a messy, sticky area to go searching through. Army actually sent one of their airplanes up to see if they could see anything from above. But with how dense the, the trees were, didn't have much luck there. Search continued on for three days without anyone finding any evidence of Myrtle anywhere. When suddenly, a searcher just stumbled upon her. She was sitting underneath a tree. She was only about a half mile from one of the major state highways. And she was alive. When she was taken to the hospital, they noticed that her hands and her face and her body had some minor scratches on it, kind of what you would expect if you let a three-year-old loose in the woods, you know. But Myrtle wouldn't talk about what happened. When, she, she, you know, she would tell about what they were doing before and after she got picked up and all that. But she kind of turned herself mute whenever police or her parents or anybody asked her about what happened in the woods. The doctors that examined her said that all things considered, it appeared that she was in excellent health. And police, for some reason, police made the statement that it appears someone was taking care of the child before she was found. 
apparently this area is also kind of infamous for being a breeding ground for snakes. And Myrtle managed to avoid stumbling into any snake dens or anything like that, thank goodness. Overall, both law enforcement and family have said that Myrtle is terrified about whatever happened in those woods. She will not talk about it. She has never talked about it. It's just a giant mystery. And what's interesting about this is, first of all, why would law enforcement come out and say, well, it appears that someone's been taking care of her? You don't kidnap a child for 48 hours. <laughs> you, you know, you don't pick her up in the woods, take her home, and then drop her back off in the woods. Of course, maybe you do during this time period. I don't know. It strikes me as very odd, though. How do you know that child's not going to talk? How do you know you're not going to leave evidence at the scene? We don't know. You know, there's been plenty of other, excuse me, there's been plenty of other missing 411 stories, particularly with children, where they talk about something in the woods taking care of them. We've covered one where I believe it was a little boy said that his grandma, who was really a robot, had pulled him into a cave and was watching out for him. Another with a little girl, I believe, said that, you know, a family of bears had taken her in and were providing her with berries to keep her going until she was found. Here we, you know, little girl walking through the swamp, walking through snake land, and when she's found, her clothes are dry, she's clean. The only evidence she's been in the wood are those scratches on her face and hands and whatnot. It's a very, very surprising story. And for what it's worth, no, Charles, the brother, has never come forward to offer any details from his end of the story. Again, he couldn't verbalize it, but he makes no effort to communicate otherwise, even though he's been asked as well. So this is one of those creepy ones where you walk away thinking somebody was helping this child, but who or why and how? That's what makes, that's what makes missing 411 cases fun, right? What state do we want to go for our next story? Y'all just shadowed out. Okay, I heard Montana. Which is convenient because Montana is the next state I have up. We are going to learn the story about Jerry Monkman. He's, this one occurred in April of 1953 in Montana. Now, Jerry was with his Boy Scout troop. They were going on a weekend camp out uh, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains there in Montana. Now, I think first we got to talk about Jerry himself to appreciate the situation. Jerry was considered frail compared to his peers. That was something that was repeated over and over again in newspaper reports and in official descriptions passed out by the police. Jerry also suffered from asthma. So he didn't, he's, you know, he's not some young Paul Bunyan that's out there. And of course, I don't mean any disrespect by this at all. He's, he's, that's the hand he was dealt in life and he's playing as best he can. I guess I imagine 
I, I imagine Jerry as a regular size Rudy from Bob's Burgers if you watch that show. But regardless, his story is that during the night, while he was out camping with his Boy Scout troop, he went missing. And of course, the troop leaders and his his fellow troop mates there searched for him, but found no signs of him anywhere. So they called the nearest town, and literally, like everyone in the town responded. Within hours, you had sixteen hundred people showing up to help search, which sounds awesome, but then that's a logistical nightmare. And it causes its own complications. But, you know, it's it's heartwarming to see that level of support. Bloodhounds were brought in. Um, you know, aircraft was brought in. Kind of nothing was left to chance here. And the bloodhounds actually caught a scent in this case and followed it for 12 miles through the foothills of the Rocky Mountains until they came across the swamp at which point the scent just disappeared. Now, during the Bloodhound search, of course, it rained heavily, which probably made the scent trail vanish or dissipate, making it difficult for the Bloodhounds. Despite all these people searching for young Jerry, none of them found him. It, he was found by just a random eight-year-old boy who was horseback riding out in these foothills one day for fun. It was about three days after he went missing that he was found, and the eight-year-old, you know, pulled Jerry up on the back of his horse and took him into town. Jerry had covered 30 miles in the 38 hours he was missing. So he was gone about two days, not three. 30 miles in 38 hours over rocky, swampy land, which is impressive. Now, when he was questioned by investigators, Jerry said, I just kept walking and I would sleep under trees and none of the animals would bother me. They just kind of avoided me. So we can read a few things into this. First, we don't know why he left. And either he doesn't know or he's not saying. Second, he slept during this time. Now, we don't know if he was taking, you know, power naps or if he was sleeping at night. But being gone only 38 hours and traveling 30 miles for a frail boy with asthma is rather incredible. And he doesn't have an explanation for it. He doesn't say, you know, that aliens picked him up and dropped him off, you know, a dozen miles away or anything wild like that. He just says, I was walking and then I was found, you know, kind of like it was nothing to him. I don't know how, I don't believe that a grown man a grown fit man who's used to hiking could cover 30 miles in 38 hours. And even, and then if you want to factor in the sleep time, how much sleep do you want to give him? 
eight hours during this course of time. So you're covering a mile an hour and you're not on a hiking trail. Understand this is not groomed territory as, as Politis describes it in his book. He was a bushwhacker out there. I mean, he was going through trees and grassland and swamps and climbing over boulders. It was very rough terrain. It was very slow going. Yet somehow Jerry managed to cover it all in only 38 hours. It's incredible. It's just one of those hallmarks of missing 411 cases. This time we've got a child traveling a further distance than seems logical. We also have the swamps. We always seems to have swamps involved with kids. And I don't know what that connection is. Now, a lot of times those stories don't end well. And certainly when the bloodhounds get to the swamps and can't find any more scent, that kind of makes your radar go up and say, uh-oh, this one's going to end badly. But it didn't. And Jerry claims he never went through any swampland. So did the bloodhounds pick the wrong scent? Does he not remember going through swampland? That's just a curious little detail. And again, you've got the rains impacting the search. It's just weird how often these stories have the same characteristics. So, But again, fortunately, little Jerry was saved by even Littler. Uh, what was the fellow's name? David Waldner, who just happened to be out riding horses that day and stumbled across this kid. So thank goodness for David, right? Next up is a tale from New Mexico. I believe it's the Land of Enchantment. Isn't that their nickname? This is another twofer. Involves Patrick Sanchez and Kenny Robinson, who were four and five respectively when they disappeared in April of 1971. Again, unusual to have pairs. I don't know that before this episode we featured any stories where pairs go missing, but... Here's another pair of pairs. Just pairing it up here. All right, so these two boys were cousins, and their families decided to celebrate the Easter weekend by going camping in the Mazano Mountains, which are about 14 miles southeast of Albuquerque. That's the only real city in that state. I have family out there. I've been out there plenty of times. Um, yeah, it's kind of Albuquerque and then a whole lot of flat land. And of course, there's beautiful places to visit out there. I'm, I'm being disingenuous in saying that. It really is a beautiful state if you've never been there. And if you take the time to to go out into nature. But it's one of these, our, our story is one of these deals where, you know, everybody shows up at the campground and, you know, the adults are unpacking everything getting everything set up and these two young cousins just run off on their own as kids are wont to do, especially when they're hanging out with their cousins. The parents tried to track them down, but had absolutely no luck. Neither child would respond to being called on. So they called the police or the local sheriff kind of in a panic because this is kind of, you know, 
untamed land, especially at this time. End up again, lots of searchers. Some reports say hundreds of folks showed up. And the belief going into the search was these boys are cousins, they're young, they're going to stick together. Makes total sense, right? Seven hours after the pair was last seen by their parents, Kenny is found alone, asleep under a tree. But Patrick was nowhere around. They asked Kenny what happened, what the deal was, and despite being the older one, Again, by older, I mean five years old. He really wasn't helpful. He couldn't provide any useful information for law enforcement or for the searchers. So for the next two days, police are out there with bloodhounds, doing the typical thing that we've talked about. United States Air Force got involved. They sent some search and rescue personnel, some equipment to help out. And 40 hours after Patrick went missing, he was found by two sergeants sitting under a tree. The lieutenant that was in charge of the squad that found the boy, uh, they had estimated that he had traveled 20 miles during the 40 hours he was missing. And that, of course, is very uncommon behavior. There's one book, David Plyce likes to refer to. It's called Lost Person Behavior by a fellow named Robert Koester. And it's kind of a, a scientific study in a journal. It's a handbook for search and rescue personnel to let them know how far people are likely to travel in a given situation. And here it says that, you know, a child under the age of five in a mountainous terrain would likely only travel 3.7 miles. 95% of the time, you can find him within that four-mile radius. But here, he's traveled 20 miles. And when he was picked up, the Air Force personnel, the sergeant, said, you know, he was tired and he was thirsty, but otherwise, he was like a normal four-year-old. When he was interviewed by, you know, the military personnel and law enforcement and his family, um, Patrick kind of just said, you know, I remember waking up. I remember walking off. I don't know why. And I don't really remember any of the details of my walk. So it was almost like he was in this drug-induced stupor, for lack of a better term. We don't have, you know, the bad weather that you typically find in these cases. But we also don't, you know, we have the bloodhounds not hitting on anything. We have a child traveling extraordinary distance in a limited amount of time. And he's in, he's in remarkably good condition for what he has been through. I mean, yes, 48 hours in the wild is not an incredible survival story for an adult. For a five-year-old, it kind of is. Um, you know, if you've got kids, or excuse me, for the, the five-year-old was found within seven hours. For a four-year-old, this is. Uh, I mean, I, I, I find my teenager doing incredibly stupid things in the safety of our home. I can't imagine what a four-year-old does left to his own devices out in the wild.
and how he doesn't stumble across, you know, something like a rattlesnake or something else equally as dangerous. It's kind of miraculous. But again, no explanation could be found. And the hospital didn't even keep him overnight. They said he was in fine condition. Despite being out there, you know, in April in New Mexico for 40 hours all alone, left to his own devices. It's just wild. Totally wild. Now we got to go way back in time for our next story. This, this one was interesting to me just because of the age of the story. It happened in 1891 to a two-year-old boy named Eddie Nichols out in New York, um, somewhere near Long Island. He was playing with his sister outside one morning. The sister went in the house to get some water, came back out a few minutes later, and Eddie is gone. She calls her mom, and the mom comes out along with the other sister. They search for the boy and then ask neighbors to assist. Of course, this gets all the community up. And we've got 800 searchers, just like that. It's incredible how many of these stories involve such a huge amount of search and rescue personnel, rather than professional or volunteer. Uh, you know, a lot of the men brought their hounds with them and tried to catch a scent looking for Eddie. The searchers went in a 10-mile radius. And they walked, you know, about a couple meters apart as they went through the woods. Very organized for the time. Very professional search done. It's, it's impressive. There's at least one article at the time that says the boy was wearing a bright red outfit. One outlet even called it a dress, which is unusual. Regardless, he's wearing something bright that should be easy to see. As they're searching, guess what happens? It's like the same story over and over. Not one, but two huge thunderstorms move through the area. Just absolutely drench everything, making it miserable for the people to search. By the end of the third day, people were getting frustrated. They were saying, well, he, you know, he couldn't have gotten this far. We've searched everywhere. We got to start thinking about whether or not kidnapping is a possibility here. No evidence to support that, but you understand why they would move to that conclusion when they've been out there marching in a 10-mile radius, you know, almost holding hands and couldn't find nothing on this boy. There was one report that night after the third day from a neighbor that kind of lived in isolation who heard a child scream. And he quickly reported it to the posse that was searching. So they decided they would spread out over the area and, you know, work in shifts, staying up all night so someone could listen to see if they could catch the sound of a boy's scream. Never did, of course. 80 hours after Eddie went missing. So just over three days. They go through that night, hear nothing. 
a man who is not involved with the search, an older man who lived two miles from Eddie's home, went out that after the sun came up, and he had apparently the distinguishing characteristic of his land was it was on a hill, and at the top of the hill were two giant oak trees. And for some reason, he just felt compelled to go up there. He goes up there, and he finds Eddie laying in a pile of leaves, face down, just barely conscious. He thought the boy was dying. So he panics. He gets, he, you know, he hollers for help. Um, I think the fire department was the first on scene, or whatever, you know, fire brigade, volunteers, whatever they were back then. They get him to the hospital, and the local physician said, he's actually in pretty good condition. He's got a slight fever, no evidence of dehydration, no evidence of exposure. He was doing all right. Now, the thing about this hill was it was prominent. And again, it has those two oak trees, so you're kind of drawn to it, which meant Dozens of searchers said, I went up on that hill. I used it to look around the area. There is no way that child could have been there. There's no way. Now, it's also odd, too, that the physician who treated Eddie would say that he was in good condition when he's gone 80 plus hours without food or water that we know of. There should be some adverse effect. Yes, he's got the fever, and maybe that's a sign of what he went through. But it's very surprising to find that. Um, interestingly, none of the articles mention what he was wearing when he was found. So either he was not wearing a red dress, as one newspaper reported, or he had shed his clothing at some point along the way. It's, and, 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 you know, again, this story is from the 1890s. And this story fits in perfectly with so many of the other accounts we've covered in this episode and in previous episodes. So... This missing one phenomenon is rather controversial. And there's a lot of people who buy into it big time. There's a lot of people who say this is a crock. This guy, this politest guy is just taking all the stories he can. He's exaggerating facts. He's leaving out other facts just to create this story of something weird in the world. I don't fall on either side of it. I take it for entertainment. It's fascinating to listen to but it's very odd if we take politis at his word here in his book that this phenomenon has been going on at least since the 1890s in the united states so for 130 years or whatever we've been seeing this same pattern repeat itself over and over and over We're going to end today on a strange one, not that any of these have been particularly normal, but we're going to Washington State.
where in 1973 and... The fellow we're talking about is Donald Siskar. He was 18 years old when he went missing in July of 73. He was in the area of Grass Mountain, Washington. So the United States Forest Service asked for some volunteers to help them clean up a lot of the trails and roadways in the... um, Oh boy, this this is one of those names I should have looked up before I did this. But when you get unscripted, you get things like this. They were in the Snoqualmie National Forest. Maybe that's close to right for people who live in that neck of the woods. So uh, Donald was a part of this group called the Neighborhood Youth Corporation. And they readily agreed, yeah, we'll help you out. We'll do whatever we can, you know, just give us an assignment and consider it done. So they were taken by bus to a specific trail up on the north side of what's known as Grass Mountain. And they were asked to clean it up, and they did. And they finished early. They were done by 2 o'clock. So they started walking back down the trail towards the bus. Now, all these men were kind of endured adorned in what I would think of as construction type garb, work boots. They were, they all wore silver hard hats, work gloves, things like that. So they're walking down the hill and there's a part of the trail that kind of does a switchback. Well, you know, these are teenagers. So of course, uh, Donald's kind of right in the middle of the group. There was a nine man group. And as they're walking back, those that were at the back of the pack decide to cut through the switch through so they're not in last place anymore because everything has to be erased when you're a guy, no matter what your age. Well, because of the way it worked out, this moved Donald to the back of the line. This switchback is about a mile and three quarters, just under two miles from where they were scheduled to meet their bus. So they all get down there, they get on the bus, they drive off, and then... A couple minutes into the bus ride, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where's Donald? And so the bus driver, probably embarrassed, turns back around. They go back to the trail, and the bus driver says, I'll go find him. And he hikes up to the switchback, and there's no evidence of him being there. On his way back down, he passes someone from the USFS who is driving in a Jeep, and he explains the situation. And so they ride on this trail all the way to the end, all the way. It ends at the top of this hill, a nice lookout point. They see nothing of Donald, nothing at all. This The driver of the Jeep calls in three other rangers to come help. They come up there, they're scouting the area, and they basically do it till sunset. It was at about 6.30, they said... We've done all we can do. We got to call on the sheriff at this point. Sheriff gets called in, takes over the operation. Again, bring out anybody and everybody who can help. Um, Politus notes in his book that there's over 55 different ground search groups that get involved in this case. And it includes... It includes people from the Boeing company, the, the aircraft manufacturer, uh, a local amateur radio club, uh, the National Guard, German Shepherd Search Dogs of Washington, 
multiple bloodhound teams, and they spend seven straight days looking for Donald. And apparently this search is extremely well documented. Everybody who was involved in it submitted some sort of report explaining where they went, what they saw, and everybody saw the same thing. Nothing. And this includes the equipment that Donald was wearing. You know, I mean, his shiny hard hat was found nowhere. He, he was the only one of the nine boys that was not wearing true work boots. He was wearing cowboy boots. So they said, okay, look for cowboy boots. Nobody found a cowboy boot on that trail anywhere. Now, in what's something of an unusual move, police went to Donald's father and said, hey, can you give us a DNA sample so we can have it on file just in case something pops up? Now, now... Remember, this is taking place in the 70s. They don't know about DNA. This happened in 2012. A detective kind of pulled this case out of the cold files, the cold cases, and was going through it and just couldn't believe that nothing was found. But for some reason, he wanted a DNA sample. I, it makes sense in a way. That's 30 years that, or almost 40 years has passed by. They haven't filed this, found this young man. If they get a DNA profile of him, they put it in the national database. If they ever came across a body or a person, they could match it up. So I understand it from that perspective. It didn't initially get any hits. So at least as of 2012... He was never found. His dad, you know, when he was interviewed, was adamant that Donald wouldn't just wander off. There's no reason to believe that, you know, being the last guy in line, he would just try to pull a prank or something on these guys. He was there to work, and they were done working. So why would you not want to go home? <laughs> Um, and that's kind of everybody's attitude. Needless to say, Donald was never found. No evidence of him, no body, nothing. He's just gone. And this is another area where if you stay on the trail, it's a good little hike. If you get off the trail, you're bushwhacking. So it's, it's hard to imagine how Donald could have gotten lost. In fact, I would say he couldn't have gotten lost. He would have to stumble off the trail, but this isn't like some of the videos you see on YouTube. I mean, this was a nice wide trail. It was easy to walk down. You know, the, these kids in a group of nine were walking, not all nine, of course, were walking shoulder to shoulder, but they had plenty of room where they were at least three abreast with plenty of room on each side. Um, again, to this day, no clothing has ever been found out there. No evidence, you know, that animals got a hold of them in some way. There's just simply no leads. Now, Politis makes a big deal in his book about the uh, DNA swab. You know, he's never heard of that. It's very unusual. What are they up to? 
Yeah, I agree it's unusual, but it also makes sense to me. Like I said, you get the DNA profile, you put it in the database. It helps if somebody just stumbles across the body and identifying it, assuming there's DNA on there. But this is a remarkable story. 18 years old, you know, not a kid, really. He's there with nine other buddies, presumably. They all get back down at the same time. Nobody even bothers to notice that Donald's missing. And when they go back to search, they can't even find a single boot print from him. It's unusual. I mean, he spent the whole day working with them. Then when it's time to go, less than two miles from the bus, he just vanishes. And again, it's another thing that's consistent with these missing 411 reports. Last man in line is usually the one that goes missing. You know, whenever you've got a group of people, someone gets snatched, we'll say, for the purposes of the story. It's going to be the person at the end of the line. That's where Donald was. And he's never been found since. It's very, very strange. I kind of hope this is not your first experience with missing 411 cases. We've certainly done a number of them. And the reason I, I hope this isn't your first experience is, A, this one's unscripted, so I didn't do any outside research. But B, we don't, we, you know, we haven't really talked about the common factors that you see in a lot of these missing 411 cases. You can go back to our first episode where we covered this phenomenon. It's like episode six or seven, very, very early days. And Politis has identified about a dozen commonalities among these cases. Again, this is a controversial topic because you can kind of cherry pick and find these factors in almost any case that you want to that involves a missing person. You know, with that, our last story there with Donald, the only real factor that we have that's common to what Politis has defined as a missing 411 case is he was at the back of the line. You know, we don't have these stories. Well, and I guess the fact that uh, the bloodhounds never picked up a scent. And is another commonality. Beyond that, we don't have the bad weather. We don't have uh, unusual appearances of clothing. And some of the previous stories we've covered in other episodes, um, you know, clothing would be found out in the wild, but not how you would think. You know, you would find uh, there was one where we found uh, a folded shirt and pants sitting on a log that belonged to a missing child. There's another one where it's jeans tucked into a boot kind of sitting on a log. And unfortunately, they found bones in there that kept it supported. There's usually some indication that something odd has happened. And do we have that in all these stories? No, we just have a lot of very weird circumstances. You know, if, if you have a four-year-old on that switchback trail instead of Donald, maybe that, that story is a little bit easier to swallow because you would expect a four-year-old to go peeking off the edge of the trail and possibly fall and all that. Same token, you'd expect eight other boys to hear it. But you never know with teenagers, of course. If this topic interests you, certainly we've got, you know, five other episodes on it. 
There are uh, plenty of other podcasts that cover this phenomenon. There is a subreddit. It's just r slash missing 411 where they talk about these stories all the time. David Politis is the figurehead for this. He's credited with creating the phenomenon or I guess identifying it. He's a retired police detective who admittedly if you piece his story together, he was interested in hunting Bigfoot. And when he would talk to National Park folks about, you know, Bigfoot cases, they'd be like, ah, there's nothing going on here. But listen, we've had these weird disappearances and nobody wants to investigate them. Maybe you should poke into that. And so it kind of shaped his career after law enforcement into chasing down these cases. And he's written a whole mess of books about them. I own a couple of them. I, oh gosh, there's probably 11 or 13 of them out there now. They, the books are interesting. You can go through them. And if you take a particular interest in a case and research it yourself, you'll find some that can be explained away pretty easily. In fact, after our first Missing 411 episode, probably two or three episodes later, we did a story about a child that was identified in one of Politis's book as a victim of Missing 411, when in reality, when you look at the, all the facts of the situation, it kind of looks like he was murdered by his stepmother or his stepbrother. Uh, but, you know, that... <sighs> That kind of lends me to believe some of the critics that Politis is eager to throw any case that could fit a missing 411 profile into the barrel of missing 411 cases. I think if he went through this with a fine-tooth comb and wasn't looking to fill up, you know, a dozen books with material, we could take this his claims a lot more seriously. But that being said, he has found some truly remarkable disappearances that defy all explanation. Uh, he has uh, at least two documentaries out I know of. There's one, I believe it's just called Missing 411. There's a second called Missing 411, The Hunted. The first one's not very well done. The second one is quite enjoyable to watch. Uh, you really get a good story and a feel for these cases out of it. And he brings in some unusual things. And, you know, one thing Politis does that I respect, and but also as a lawyer makes me kind of raise my eyebrow that this dude's hiding something. He refuses to speculate on what's happening here. He will entertain the idea that there's some interdimensional force or alien presence or Bigfoot presence, but he kind of takes the attitude of, hey, brother, you said it, not me, you know. So people get frustrated with him because he won't make any effort to reach a conclusion. I also understand why. If you don't understand what's going on here and you're a single man working on these cases, you know, if he came out and said... I, I don't know. Let's say fairies are taking these people, okay? The fae are responsible. Well, as soon as somebody s pr finds some evidence that contradicts that, your credibility goes down the pooper. So I get it. But 
I take these stories as enjoyable little mysteries. They're sad. Fortunately, I mean, this episode, most of the kids were recovered, um, which is good. A whole bunch of them, they're not. And so they are of the sad, sad side of the coin, as somebody who could speak would say. But, you know, we we kind of do the true crime thing and all that because we get interested in, you know, these sad and scary tales, and this kind of falls into that. So that's our unscripted take on some more Missing 411 stories. I hope you enjoyed them. I am so unscripted that I do not even have a palate cleanser for us. But I'm going to fix that right now. I'm going on my trusty phone. All right, this is this is not Eli approved, okay? This is uh this is all your buddy Brad. So you know it's going to be horrible. I apologize, but it's a palate cleanser. So, at least we're getting that. Why was the tree's mother angry? Why was the tree's mother angry? Because that little child tree was being naughty. You get it? Not naughty, but naughty. K-N-O-T-T-Y. Yeah. All naughty. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's kind of what you get for me. So God bless you for sticking with us to the end. I hope to be back next week with a real true crime case that maybe even has a script. So I'm not just rambling off the top of my head. Uh, as always, you know, I will ask, beg, plead with y'all to do certain things to help us grow. You know, first of all, we've got our merch store. We've got some cool designs up there, if I do say so myself, since I designed them. In fact, they're awe-inspiring, tear-jerking. They will change your life. And they're only going to be up there through November. So if you want to grab on to one of those fancy T-shirts, or we've got a vest on there, I believe. It's hard to remember when you change up stock every 12 or every month. Anyway, check it out. It's kmhpodcast.com slash shop. It's kmhpodcast.com slash shop. If you're in the United States, you get free shipping, no matter how big or small your order. So enjoy that. You can stock up and go crazy. We also love it when you share our stuff, share our episodes. This is the only way we can grow. All right. I can't be like certain big-time podcasts that are going to be sitting in the top 10 of Apple's, you know, most recommended true crime and buy listeners and pay people to do search engine optimization and to be my social media coordinators and all that mess. I rely on y'all. You know, if you like what we do here, please share it with a friend and a loved one. That's the only way we really grow. We also really appreciate ratings, especially if you leave a review. Now, look, I'll just be blunt. We only appreciate the, you know, the four and five star ones. If, you, if you've got to leave a one star rating, I assume we're doing something wrong. And so email me. Tell me what you think we can improve on. Because I, 
this is not my day job. I'm more than happy to to change up anything to make the sound better if you think we're doing something wrong. I'm always here. I'm a nice guy. I probably won't bite or sue you. Uh, we are all over Instagram, and we've got a Facebook group you can join if you want to. We're just under Killing, Missing, Hidden. You do have to answer three questions. They are very simple questions along the lines of, what's your favorite episode? Just something to keep the bots away, something to show that you're not going to pop in and start selling us on your new miracle, you know, hair loss or weight loss cure. So don't skip over those questions, but we'd love to have you in the group. Uh, you get nothing for being in the group except the camaraderie and knowing that there's hundreds of people just like you out there. I am going to announce on this episode, November 15th, that I think we are going to take a holiday break this year. We've never done it, but I don't know that we'll be posting anything during set or during December. It's hard. September is not really the holiday season I was thinking of. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to use that time to try to improve a few things, retool a few things, maybe get a few episodes recorded and ahead so I don't have to rush to do this when I've had a particularly busy week. I'm also looking at um, a few options on the business side. Anyway, stuff y'all wouldn't care about, but... Uh, well, you would care about me not, you know, showing up for a month, but uh, just wanted to give that warning out there. And I tend to ramble, so I'm sorry. This is why I keep all this stuff towards the end. So, you know, when you get tired of me, you can just cut it off. But anyway, thank you all for uh, listening. It's It's seeing how many people tune in every week that really, really keeps our engines revved up and going. So I appreciate you doing that. Appreciate y'all sharing everything. And we will be back next week with a fun new topic. So until then, as I always say, I love y'all. I want you to do something fun for yourself this week. But I will end by saying, Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.